Amen. Well, a hymn uh, worthy of any Lord's Day, but of course, that's a Palm Sunday um, hymn. Happy Palm Sunday. Well, that's the passage we're in, so I thought we'd sing that as we head on in and continue through the Gospel of John. That happens as you preach through a gospel and follow the life of Christ. It doesn't always match our uh, holidays. But here we are in John chapter 12, verses 12 um, through, um, I'm sorry, verses 12 through 19. These are the very words of God. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Thus, the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Fathers, we come before you. The word open before us. Open our hearts and do the work that only your spirit can do. Lead us into the story and lead our story into yours. Turn us towards you in every way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. So this event, Jesus, on purpose, goes into a very public mode. This is very different. This is a strange departure from Jesus' ministry. We've seen throughout John several times after he would heal or after there would be a great feeding of the 5,000, for instance, that Jesus would go away. He did not want to be brought into the public venue. He did not want to be kind of raised up and tried to be made king. And yet now he comes into Jerusalem on a particular day, six days before um, or the week before um, Passover, and as he does so, he wants to draw the public's attention. Uh, he, this is exactly the opposite of what had taken place when just, just a few days prior, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. In uh, chapter 11, 53, 54, it says, Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death, and therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples." So many think, um, as many in the crowds that day thought, that Jesus came, he came in in this particular way to garner public support, to reign in Jerusalem, to overthrow the Romans or the Pharisees and the chief priests or all of them. And, and we'll see how, um, the kinds of things that Jesus did that would make them think that's exactly what Jesus was intended to do. But his acts and intentions were actually far higher and far wider than that. And the means by which he was going to accomplish the plans before him, the plans both he and his father had, while laid out by the prophets of old, remained hidden from the crowd. They had no idea what was just about to occur in just a few days. Both friends and enemies were not sure, did, could not make sense of this. And, and really, in this passage, we see just layers upon layers upon layers of prophecies that are, that are being fulfilled, being pointed to, um, to revealing what's going on. Look again at, at verse um, 16 of, of this passage. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Not, not only all of the crowd 
but his followers who have been with him for three years, who have, have heard so much from Christ about what he intends to do, they don't understand all that's going on right at that time. And it goes on and says, um, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. That they had, that they had made, uh, the, the other gospels tell us that Jesus tells them to go ahead and get, go ahead of him into the city and get a donkey and bring it out to him. That, that John does not focus on that. Um, they, they, they knew that, uh, that they, were the, they may have been the ones, some of the ones that had gathered around and were waving palm branches. They had joined with uh, the children and all of them in singing uh, Psalm 118. And, and, the, and they were there when the kids wouldn't stop. And, and the Pharisees said, would you, would you tell those kids to be quiet? And Jesus had said, well, if, 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 even if they stop singing, even then the rocks will cry out. Again, a lot, a lot of that, those details are not in John's gospel, but in the synoptics. They were there. They remembered and, and it's always important to remember who John's first audience is. John, John's writing several decades after these events have taken place, and he knows that this gospel is going to get distributed. He knows that there are many people who are going to read this who were there. And for them also, he's, he's telling this story, like he says in, in John chapter 20, he says he's telling this story so that they would believe so that they would connect the dots, uh, or they would remember how those dots were connected and be encouraged in the midst of growing persecution um, in the church. They, they would be encouraged about how Jesus took such a public um, display of his kingship and lordship, such a public display of, of what he was and who he was, regardless of what it cost him. And that then we would do the same, that the disciples and the followers in this early church would do the same for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of the gospel. So these actions would mean that the events of the arrest and the condemnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection would all be events that could be attested to by many. Jesus begins uh, uh, doing many actions that are going to be very publicly displayed. And as he comes into Jerusalem, he wants the city to see, here I am. Watch what happens. Um, in, when Paul, um, much later on, is speaking to King uh, Agrippa, he says in Acts 26, as he's talking uh, about the, the, the work of Christ um, when he was on the earth, he says, for the king, before whom I also speak freely, he knows these things. King Agrippa, you know these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since these things, this thing was not done in a corner. It was um, broadly understood that Jesus Christ had come into Jerusalem that he had been crucified, that he had been raised from the dead. And listen to what Paul says, if you don't recall, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Caiaphas, then by the twelve. And then listen, so you hear all of that, you know that, you're Christians, we, just, we recited the creed, but then listen, as Paul is writing this to the Corinthians, he says, And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Basically, what Paul is saying in the footnotes, what Paul is saying is, um, you know that he, raised, he was raised from the dead. You know you can go talk to multiple witnesses who saw him after he was resurrected. 
So th- th- that's the context that Paul's writing in, and that's a context that John is writing in as he's saying many of these, um, when, when this happened on Palm Sunday, when this happened uh, that, that day, the week of Passover, there were many people who saw this. And you might have been one of them, or I bet you know somebody, or you've heard, um, or you've read about what happened. You, you know this really took place. It's very interesting, throughout the Gospels, um, and then um, in, in, for instance, Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, th- there isn't uh, an attempt to prove that Jesus Christ existed. There isn't an attempt to prove that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There are, there's an attempt to prove all kinds of things because Jesus rose from the dead, it's assumed. It, it's assumed. And it's, it's, it's not just assumed and asserted um, because that's what we should do, which is what we should do. Um, but we find ourselves in a different place in that we can't necessarily point to eyewitnesses that are here right now that you could go talk to. But it's asserted then because there were eyewitnesses. It wasn't doubted. Now, there were those who were making stories up that were, trying to, that were trying to say that, oh, no, someone came and stole his body. Or There, there were kinds of, we know in the book of Matthew, we're told that um, the, the guards were, were paid off to make up stories that, that Christ had somehow, um, someone had come and taken a body or something like that. But it wasn't, that wasn't um, widely received. What was widely received was that I know somebody or I know somebody who knows somebody that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because of that, then Paul will argue other things. He'll start from that um, and, then, and then argue for other, for other things. And this is because of this event and the, and the week that would follow. Jesus is complete. He wants all eyes turned to him now. I want you to see who I am. I want you to see what I am about to do. So because the time had finally come, uh, one, of the com- one commentator writes, he was goading the leaders of the Jewish Sanhedrin into acting on their wicked plans. He knew that they had planned to, put, to kill him, and now he would say, as he's going to say in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the verses to come, my hour has now come. It is now my hour. And he actually takes, does actions that he knows quite surely are going to goad the political leaders to do what they have intended to do, which will actually do exactly what God has prophesied that they would do for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the salvation of the world. Okay, so let's look, kind of go through the details here of this passage, first of all. This is John's telling. John emphasizes different aspects of this event than the synoptics, and so having set those other things aside, we're going to stick with the emphases that we find in this passage. Word got out. A great multitude of those who had come to Passover heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, verse 12. They took palm branches and went out of the city as he approached, and they're singing from Psalm 118 and proclaiming Jesus the King of Israel. We'll look at that in more detail in just a moment. At some point, Jesus seated himself on a donkey, fulfilling prophecies from Isaiah 40 and Zechariah 9. These connections were not completely understood by his disciples until after Jesus had ascended into heaven in verse 16. The crowd who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus bore witness to and with those who had come out of the city that Jesus had done this sign, verses 17 and 18, and then the Pharisees' um, reaction. The Pharisees realized that they were accomplishing nothing in trying to stop the growing following of Jesus and his threat to their place of authority and prominence over the people. That's verse 19. So, palms and hosannas. What's going on here? Palms and hosannas. Passover is approaching. 
Um, again, the city in these feasts, the city would grow to more than, more than double its size. Some would say triple and even quadruple in size. So um, you, you, you have people coming in from all kinds of nations, the Jews who had dispersed, and you have a city full of visitors, full of visitors for this great feast. And, and as they come into these feasts, in all of these feasts, they would sing the Hallel Psalms. These are Psalm 113 to 118. They, they would, these would be the songs of the festival. These would be songs that would be sung regularly. And so sung after feast after feast, this, these messianic psalms had become the fight songs of the Jewish independence party in the days of Jesus and even following. When these, songs would be, when these psalms would be sung, they would be sung with the great hope of a political leader who was going to come in and deliver God's people, deliver Israel from the oppressions, from the oppressions at that time from, from the Romans. Palm branches um, had, had been spread out in, in years prior to this. And you can see, you can read this in the book of Maccabees, in the apocalyptic, um, I'm sorry, in the apocryphal books. Um, in the book of Maccabees, you can see this. Palm branches had been spread out when Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of Jerusalem in 141 B.C. He was raised up as the great king, the great Messiah, the great deliverer of God's people. And as he came back in in victory, they, they would raise these palm branches. They waved these palm branches as a sign of victory. Um, and also, in, uh, in later in, in, in 164 BC, when the temple was rededicated again after uh, taking over and, uh, and putting down the Greeks and re regaining the, the temple in those days. The cry Hosanna is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew word that we see in Psalm 120, uh, 118, verse 25. Give salvation now. Hoshiah becomes Hosanna. And so when they're crying out Hosanna, they're crying out, save us. This is the day of salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they say the king of Israel, which is not right, which is not immediately from, um, from that psalm. But they're identifying Jesus as the one who is coming in to save. So they're applying all of Psalm 119, though, not just that one little verse. Because remember, they're singing all of the Hallel Psalms. What, what John is doing is, uh, this, this may have been a great chorus that would have been repeated as, as the kids were singing it, waving their palm branches, and then all the people joining in as well. But all of Psalm 118 would have been sung, and they're seeing, the, 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 as they're singing this, then they're, they're believing that Jesus is the one. This must be the one that's coming. And we see this, I can show you this explicitly from Psalm 118, but then I want to show it to you from the entire psalm as well. So I hope you have a Bible with you. Turn with me to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. <clears throat> so what's being, what John is quoting immediately in the passage that we're in is verse 25. Save now. I pray, O Lord, or Hosanna, Hosanna, Yahweh. Hosanna, Hosanna, Yahweh. O Yahweh, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But I want you to look back just a couple of verses before, verse 22. This, um, Peter and others will point to this verse um, as being fulfilled in Christ. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, so, so those two verses are, are, are speaking 
particularly we are told by Peter and, and, other, uh, and other writings also in the, in the New Testament that the, the stone that was rejected is Christ, who is the cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23 is referring to Christ. But you don't have to just pick out a verse here and pick out a verse there and say, well, that verse has to do with Christ. All of the Psalms are pointing to Christ. All of the Psalms are the songs and the voice of Christ. All of the Psalms show us who Jesus Christ is. And, and that's, why, that's one of the reasons why God wants you to sing Psalms. You're singing about Christ. Now, let me take you through Psalm 118 and show that. Now, you've got to imagine this. You, you have to think for a moment. Imagine that you already know Psalm 118. It's, it's one of your favorites. It's like, it's like one of your favorite Thanksgiving hymns, one of your favorite Christmas hymns. And whenever the feast rolls around, you, you love singing this psalm with your people. And as you've sung this psalm, it, it's also a nationalistic psalm. It, it's a song that you, you cry out for the saving of your nation, for the saving of your people, and you long to see the day that God will fulfill that, okay? That's, that's the way you sing it. That's the way you sing it as God's people. We want another Passover. We want another deliverance like Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt. That, that's what we're singing about, okay? Now, look at this. Look through Psalm 118 with me. This psalm sings of Jesus the promised mercy of the Lord had come. Um, verses one through four is over and over again. The, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let, let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. That's like Psalm 136, over and over again. Look at how the psalm ends here as well. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So Psalm 118 is bookended with this declaration God's mercy is forever, and it's ours forever. Okay, bookending that. That's the theme of Psalm 118, God's mercy that is ours. Jesus, now think about this. Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, trusting in his Father and not in men. He would not put his trust in men. We saw that several times in the Gospel of John, but he was trusting his Father. Now read with me verses 5 through 9. I called on the Lord in distress. Now don't, don't hear it as, as David singing this. Hear this as Jesus. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidences in princes. I'm trusting my father. Okay. Jew and Gentile alike would join together to crucify the Lord that week. But Jesus knew that he came in triumph. Verses 10 through 14. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. God would be the one who would protect Christ even from death 
And God would be the one through Jesus Christ who would crush the nations, who would, who would bring judgment upon those nations that had, um, that had put the Lord to death. And, um, and, as it says in Psalm 110, would make all of the peoples and en- all his enemies a footstool for his feet. He would do so as he's done for you. He's do- he would do so by bringing them to himself, by quenching and killing their rebellion, and their, uh, their rebellion against God and against his law and against his ways, and raising them up in new life, just as he has done with you. This is what the psalm's about. And then, uh, so the psalm speaks triumphantly of life and then of the way of salvation. Pick up again, beginning in verse 15. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he is not giving me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. And then this is followed by the irony of God's intentions through the wicked plans of sinners. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then imagine, as Jesus is writing in, and you're believing this song, Singing now verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it as you see him come into the city. That's what it would have been like. That's what, that's what they would have been experiencing. Then comes the verses that John said the crowd lingered upon. Hosanna, save us. Verse uh, 25, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then... Uh, In verse 27, God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And cords can be translated branches. The palm was the emblem for a conqueror and the song was for a promised Messiah king, the king of Israel. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. So verse 28, um, oh, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his mercy endures forever. This would be the song going through their minds as, as they would, um, as, they would uh, as Jesus came in, and it would be the song that they would linger over later on after his ascension. Because like you, they might not have connected all the dots. It was still, there were, there, things were happening so fast. In fact, not only were there palms and hosannas, there's a donkey that shows up. A donkey is, is found and brought to Jesus, and then as, he, as he's walking in, he is now placed upon this donkey. It's back in John 14, John 12, 14. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. And then John writes, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The images and prophecies, like as I said, are coming fast and furious, such that the disciples don't understand this as it's taking place. It's not that they didn't know the messianic passages of Isaiah 49 and, and Zechariah 9.9, 9. Uh, but, but it took a while before these things... Um, it's not like Jesus got on the donkey and said, remember Isaiah 49 and remember Zechariah 9. Guys, everybody remember? See what's happening? That's not how he did it. He just got on the donkey... And the experience happened. Then later on, 
You got to meditate on these things. Kind of like I've said with the Gospel of John. You got to meditate on these things. You got to think about them for a while and see how these things all fit together. I always think it's weird that it's a donkey, don't you? It's like, a donkey? Because <laughs> for us, donkeys and mules are comical animals that someone would sit on. You'd have clowns and circuses and things like that, right? Um, but, um, but that's not the way it was uh, in, in the days of Israel. You, you might recall that David's sons rode mules, this is in 2 Samuel 13, and Solomon particularly, that son of David, rode to his coronation on a mule that belonged to David. So riding upon a donkey or, or a mule, riding upon that was a sign of one coming having conquered, one being assigned into this place of, 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 of conquering victory, of, conquer, of a conquering that had taken place, and coming not on a war horse, but rather um, coming as a prince of peace. Okay, That's, that would be the picture. A donkey is brought to Jesus and he rides in, not on a war horse with armies, flashing, but rather in an image of lowliness and peace, and, and it's lowliness as well. Zechariah 9.9, and I'd like you to turn with me to Zechariah also. Right before Malachi, so if you're trying to find it. Zechariah 9.9. We'll look at this just here. It says, in, 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 in the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why this picture of he is just and having salvation, lowly riding on a donkey? I thought this was a sign of coming and conquering. Well, it, it was a lowly place as well, but it would only be this, this, this salvation, this, this conquering would only be through his humiliation that Jesus would, have been give, would be given that then finally his exaltation as well. Stay right there in Zechariah if your Bibles are open there, but listen to, to Paul in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is this humiliation that leads to exaltation, Paul says, is a mindset that we are to imitate. Let this mind be in you as well. Imitate this. Be like this, he says. And, and uh, in, in, the, in the weeks ahead, as we continue through John's gospel, we'll actually see where Jesus applies that, to have that mindset of humility, of service to others, of washing the feet of others, of being willing to die for others, of being willing to die to yourself and humble yourself to be exalted, of, of being willing to, to not make you the center of the universe, 
but rather God the Father, trusting him through your own death, your spiritual death, you're dying to yourself, you're dying to your lusts, you're dying to your desires, you're dying to your idolatries, to now be raised up in new life, free, empowered by his spirit, exalted. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you in due time. That's what we're told and promised. So this is a picture also. Coming king who's coming in as, as the conquering one, the one who has conquered and yet coming in lowly, according to Zechariah, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt. This humility, though, really does lead to glorification. And so if you knew Zechariah, how I many of you know Zechariah 9 well? That's why I want your Bible open, because it continues. Zechariah 9.10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. And now Zechariah is going to quote Psalm 72. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Even goes on, as for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, the blood of the new covenant, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And it will just be days. And Jesus will say, take, drink. This is, my this is my blood poured out for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. Verse 12, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. The, to the ones who have humbled themselves with me. To the ones who have bowed the knee in humble submission and obedience. To you, I will double your prosperity. To you, I will double your blessing. To you, I will give eternal life with me. All of this is tied in as Jesus rides in to Jerusalem. He's coming in such humility, and he's doing so by faith, for he knows that the blood of his covenant will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And the quote from Psalm 72 is the, is the new psalm that we've been singing um, uh, here at, and, and, and that's the song of the coronation of Solomon. The coronation of Solomon, uh, where there's the promise that, he will, that this son of David will reign from sea to sea and all the way to the ends of the earth. So Jesus was willing to endure the cross because of the joy that was set before him. And he tells his disciples to do the same. For the joy that is set before you, endure whatever I give you. Obey whatever I call you to. There's nothing but blessing on the end of obedience. There is nothing but blessing on the, uh, at the end of faith. There is nothing but exaltation following godly, honest humiliation before God. That's what he promises. For those who have ears to hear, that's what he promises. He knew what he was going to accomplish in the coming week. And his own word had spoke to it. And now the word made flesh was going to do it. Verse 17 through 19 then back in John, if you would turn back there. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Psalm 118 spoke of the triumphant king of Israel coming to save his people. And Zechariah 9 spoke of the blood of this covenant which would be spilled for the prisoners to be set free. 
prisoners to be set free, even from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. There's not a prisoner that Jesus Christ cannot set free upon this earth. There's not, there is not blood of his covenant that cannot wash, the way, wash away any sin, any of the deepest and darkest sins, even of the most um, uh, repugnant to those that you might be around sins. The blood of the covenant washes clean to all who call upon his name. That's what he came to do. Just as Caiaphas spoke prophetically of what he did not comprehend, you'll recall in, in, in John 11, Caiaphas says, being high priest, he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider it that it, is, that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And John comments, now that he, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So now, with the swelling crowds and shouts of deliverance by a Savior, the Pharisees do the same thing as Caiaphas. They speak prophetically. They don't even know. They have no idea what they're saying with regard to its prophetic implications. They say in verse 19, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. This, they're saying that to one another. They've, they've planned. We've got, we got to stop this Jesus. We've got to stop what could become an insurrection. We've got to stop where we're going to lose our authority. We, we've got to stop him. They make plans or plots. They've told everybody. If you see him coming to the city, you've got to let us know. He comes in in this great parade. Everybody is around him shouting and singing. And they don't know what to do. And you find out actually more details about that if you read the synoptics. They don't know what to do. And they turn to one another here that John records, and they go, we're not getting anywhere. This is not, this is not our, our intentions. Our, our, what we're trying to do isn't working at all. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. In fact, look at the very next two verses. We'll take them up next time. But immediately we are told, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. The whole world is there represented by all these nations, uh, these peoples that are coming from all these nations for Passover. <laughs> okay, so what happens? Well, they could see that they were accomplishing nothing in terms of stopping this man and would take action. They would now begin to take action as secretly as possible. That's why you're going to see Jesus get arrested at night, which was against the law to, to, to arrest someone at night and have an immediate trial before the day. So they're, they're trying to lawfully do things. We'll, we'll deal with that. But they're trying to do things lawfully, or they're trying to do something they believe is righteous, which is put to death a, a, a man like Jesus, but they're doing it um, illegally at the, at the same time. So... Um, so they have to begin to do things secretly. Once again, you see how Jesus threatens hu uh, human political powers. I, I, um, I think we have to come to understand this because I think that we have thought, I think that the church has thought that the separation of church and state meant that everything going on in the church would have no impact upon the state. Um, but when we say we believe in the, in the separation of the of the governing powers of the ecclesiastes of, of the church and the civil realm. We are talking about the civil realm not being able to impose, um, determine who's going to be excommunicated in, in the church. We're talking about how the church is not able to tell the, um, to tell the government you must have thus and such economic policy. 
We are not talking about separation of morality and state. We're not talking about the separation of God and state. We're talking about the separation, the, the delegated powers that are given to the different, different civil or different realms, spheres of government that God established. And when the church, through Jesus Christ, grows in strength, the political powers are the political powers, if they are in rebellion against God, his law, his moral authority, they will be threatened. We won't even have to try. They will be threatened by the authority of the voice of God spoken through the church to them. And it will, um, and it will and for them, for in, in this situation here, the, 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 and, it's, and it really is connected, the political powers become envious of the power the church has over people they want to rule over. They want to tell you what to do, and the church is telling you what God says that you must do, and they envy that you're obeying God and not them. This is exactly what is going on when, um, when they put Christ to death. In Mark's gospel, it says, for he knew, Pilate, Pilate knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. They envied the devotion and the obedience of these people to Christ over them. And that, that causes the persecutions that begin to take place um, from day one um, after Christ's uh, ascension. So, just as the Pharisees spoke far above what they knew, so we can be attempted also, I think, to speak far under what we know. They, they said, for the world is coming after him. And, and we in the church have, to have a tendency to say, well, no, not the, the world's not going to. The world's not going to come after him. A little smattering of people over here, a little smattering of people over there, but it's not like it's going to be this, this, this incredible global harvest. It's not going to be as though Jesus has authority over heaven and earth. Oh, wait. Maybe, maybe he does. It's not as though he's going to rule and his rule is going to be seen and manifest from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Oh, wait. Maybe that's exactly what he's talking about. It's not going to be like, like, a, like a peck of leaven that you, you, know, you put in a lump of dough and then it completely spreads and, and the, whole, the whole dough rises, except that's what Jesus said that his kingdom was going to do. It's not like this little teeny group of followers, just a 120 or so up in the upper room, like, a, like the smallest seed in the garden, is ever going to grow to anything significant like the largest tree in the garden where all the birds would come and nest, except that's what Jesus said it was going to be. Hmm. God did not send the Son to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That the world might be saved through him. John three seventeen. We must join with Jesus, both in the assurance of faith, even now, before the full manifestation of what has been declared. Jesus could ride into Jerusalem in full assurance of the faithfulness of his Father, of the intentions and plans of his Father and himself for the world, before it happened. He knew what was going to happen in the coming week, and we are to join with him in the proclamation of his glory and kingdom, and we are as well to join with him in humble service to the nations. Humility and assurance, confidence and bending down to serve. In so doing, God's spirit will be poured out upon the nations and the peoples, we are told, will flow to the mountain of the Lord. The nations 
will flow to the mountain of the Lord. Peter Lightheart writes, Jesus comes as the conqueror of the nations, but he does not come to conquer Jerusalem except through his own self-offering. He comes as a conqueror, but one who is meek and lowly and seated upon a donkey. But let's be clear. He has come to conquer, and conquer he will. Those who attempt to oppose Christ will find in the end that they are accomplishing nothing. To stand against Christ either as an individual To stand against Christ as a people accomplishes, in the end, nothing. Nothing. It will do you no good to stand against Jesus. So, yes, Jesus comes, and he comes now in the preaching of the word, his word. He comes to conquer hearts, and he comes to conquer nations. He comes for your heart, but he comes as the Prince of Peace. The one who can bring real and lasting and eternal peace in your heart with you and your God. He humbled himself, not only on a donkey, but nailed to a gibbet to give you that peace. Atoning for all of your sins, everything that kept you from having peace with God. And it's here and it's offered to you. All that he did 2,000 years ago is here for you now and for you, and for the nations. Those who stand against this Prince of Peace, all who try to find peace and meaning and power and rule, all who try to find the satisfaction they desire, all who tend to purge themselves of their own guilt and shame by other means, without the Son of God, without humbling before Him as He humbled Himself before His Father, will find in the end the same thing the Pharisees said. We accomplished nothing. I accomplished nothing. You cannot stop this king. You cannot stop him from being king and lord and judge of your heart and your life. You cannot stop him. You will accomplish nothing. You cannot stop his reign over all the nations. There is not a leader, not an emperor, not a governor, not a king, not a legislation that can stop the rule of King Jesus today. Oh, but it looks like they are. Yes, and it looked like they did when they hung him on the cross. But when they hung him on the cross, it turns out that all of their actions were actually completely being used according to the plan of God to bring, to, to bring salvation to all the nations and to raise him to the throne, the highest of all high thrones, to be King of kings and Lord of lords. They accomplished Nothing. And you will accomplish nothing. And our governors and our legislators and all of the emperors of the world will accomplish nothing in trying to stop the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ over all eternity. Nothing. The moments where it looks like it are nothing more than moments. They're nothing more than moments of the one who has promised that he will establish his kingdom, that it has been established upon this earth, and that we are to go and tell all the enemies of God, put down your weapons and come peaceably. It's a party, by the way. That's what we are called to do. And that's what Christ is doing as he's riding in to Jerusalem. You cannot stop him. Come now and believe on the Lord Jesus and watch him. In fact, join with him. 
as he rules the world from his throne. Come to the desire of nations. Listen to Haggai. And I will shake the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says Yahweh of armies. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. God of mercy, who sent your Son to die for us and to rule over us and through us, rule over these hearts and souls now, and be glorified by granting faith to live as disciples, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us, for me, that we might enter into the joy of the Lord. So let us do so as you ride on in victory, Lord Jesus Christ, and amen. Let's stand and respond. We'll sing together number 666. The Son of God goes forth to war. 666.